Well, I'm uh, privileged to uh, have you or invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, a portion of God's Word that is well familiar to you. It's 1 John chapter 4. Yes, we are uh, temporarily moving out of Galatians uh, just for uh, this time. I want to say, though, that we are off to a great start to this grand list of the fruit of the Spirit that we have been studying from Galatians chapter 5.22, with already several weeks behind us. We spent two weeks just setting the record straight about biblical love. And whether some of us have been challenged by it, convicted, encouraged, or reassured in our practice of God's love, we have only God to thank for the way that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts through the word preached. It's God's primary means, of course, of confirming and convicting, instilling hope and moving us to greater acts of godliness. You know, it's often the case that after I have preached, someone may say to me, or a few, you know, Pastor, you were speaking to me. I sure needed that. Or, were you eavesdropping on my life since last Sunday? You hit me right between the eyes today. And the answer, of course, is no. No, I haven't the slightest idea what was going on in your life this past week, and I was targeting no one with my preaching. The nature of expository preaching that we practice here at PRBC, as you know, is to work our way through a book verse by verse. So I have no preconceived notions or ulterior motives to my messages. I just turn the page and preach the next verse. So if something I say resonates with you in some special or even dramatic way, well, that is the Holy Spirit taking his truth out of the word into your heart and having his way there. The Holy Spirit knows something about you that I don't. And as long as I... I'm true to the text and faithful to bringing an accurate exposition of it, he's sure to take it from there and address your needs accordingly. So I, I hope you're excited then for the, the way that he will minister you this morning. As you know, this is Christmas Sunday, and it just so happens to fall right after our two-week study on biblical love, another great timing on the Holy Spirit's part. So I'm going to take the opportunity to speak more on biblical love because there is no greater example of God's display of love to his people than the incarnation of Christ. We leave Galatians then for today and we turn our attention to 1 John chapter 4. So I want you to follow along with me as I read verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. The apostle says... By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only Son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a lot there. I've tried to capture it for you in what I might call the main idea of these two verses, It goes like this, the incarnation is the greatest example of God's love, for through it he gave us new life and redemption and enabled us to love. I want to begin by opening opening that up for you with the first part of that main idea. 
The incarnation is the greatest example of God's love, for through it he gave us new life and redemption. You'll notice that John singles out two accomplishments that contribute to making the incarnation the greatest act of God's love. And the first one is that by it, God gave us new life. Look at verse 9. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has, has sent his only Son into the world, that we may live through him. Now, if you've been part of our study on biblical love, you will remember that we prove that biblical love is both an emotion and an action, but first an action. And that's important for us to know because of those times when we don't feel like loving our neighbor, and that's no excuse not to. In the absence of a brotherly emotion, we argued, we can give of ourselves to our neighbor, put ourselves out for our neighbor, which is love in action. And we have God's promise that, that those loving actions will create a proper brotherly feeling. The principle you might remember is this. Do what you know to be right, and you will eventually feel right. And this was God's promise to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. We developed that principle in great detail last time, and you can go back to that message if uh, you need to rehearse it. Loving actions promote loving feelings, pure and simple. Now, here in 1 John 4, verse 9, John calls us to, uh, or calls our attention, rather, to an act of God's love, the greatest act, in fact, of God's love, and that is the sending of his Son. God loved us in that he gave Christ. John declared this once before, you might remember. He declared it to his churches in his great uh, epistle, John chapter 3, verse 16. We all know it well. We can recite it in our sleep. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. There it is, love in action. Every time the New Testament writers mention God's love, it's always in terms of God giving. We can add 1 John 4, 9, and 10 to the mix. So in what way did God love us? He gave us his son. The very grammar of verse 9 supports this idea. The opening words, by this, points us ahead to the incarnation. We might translate them this way. This is how God revealed his love to us. And how is that? By sending his son into the world so that we may live through him. <laughs> Wonderful declaration this is. So hopeful. So joyous. It actually gives us a, a greater appreciation for the intensity with which God loved us. Here's how. The intense way in which God loved you is directly proportional to the uniqueness of his son. What do I mean by that? Well, John says God sent his only son. Do you see that? The word only is the same word that John uses in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Only has traditionally been understood as only begotten, but the idea of begotten is inaccurate. A word study shows that it has more to do with something that is unique rather than something procreated. 
And the idea of uniqueness makes a lot of sense since Christ had no beginning, he is God. And more than this, John refers to Christ as he was before his incarnation, right? That's whom God sent. He sent his unique son. You'll be interested to know that the Greek word here, uh, translated only, is also the translation that the Greek Old Testament uses to translate the Hebrew uh, passage of Genesis 22, verse 2. This is where uh, Moses describes for us Abraham's son Isaac. In Genesis 22, verse 2, we read, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now we know, don't we, that Abraham had two biological sons. He had Ishmael and Isaac. So it would be inaccurate to say that Isaac was Abraham's only begotten. But it is accurate to say that he, that he was Abraham's unique son. He was the son of promise, the one God gave to Abraham and Sarah in their old age when they were incapable of bearing children. God enabled them miraculously to produce a son, a son of promise, the unique one-of-a-kind son. He was the miracle baby. And that's exactly how we're to understand Jesus. He is unique, certainly one-of-a-kind, unparalleled, the only one who could carry out God's will for the salvation of his people. He sent his precious, unique son for us. But let's not stop there. You'll appreciate God's act of love for you also by the fact that God sent Christ so that you could live. In fact, that you could have new life. What is this? Yes, John says that we may live. The implication is that without God's Son, we die. But to be more theologically precise, we remain dead. Condemned, if you must know. It would be through the incarnation that God's people would be receiving new life, eternal life. Oh, this verse is one of those central verses, beloved, in the Bible that helps us make sense of God's redemptive plan for the ages. It's, it's much like one of those puzzle pieces that clarifies the overall picture of the puzzle. I like jigsaw puzzles. They're a great way to pass the time with others. You can talk as you piece the puzzle together. Now, if you know anything about a puzzle... You know that the picture it displays emerges slowly and sometimes painfully so, right? Piece by piece. And it's often the case that you, the puzzler, often become more puzzled the more pieces you put into place. That's odd. How is that? You would think that's just the opposite. Oh, no, it's true. You snap more pieces in, but what slowly emerges is, well... Not quite what you think it should be. I don't see where this is going. It, It doesn't resemble the picture on the box. There doesn't seem to be enough pieces to complete it. Are we missing some? 
And then you come across those few pieces that when you snap them in instantly, unite larger detached sections that you thought had nothing to do with each other. And you begin to have a better idea of what's taking shape. Oh, yes, of course I see now what's going on here. If our puzzle was a picture of salvation history, that is, God's plan of salvation for his people, saving a people for himself through Christ from beginning to end of history, those, one of those central pieces that help make better sense of the whole when snapped into place is the Incarnation. Obviously, there are many other events that fill out this redemptive picture that you would need to know, and some of the more significant ones we might think as edge pieces to the puzzle. Veteran puzzlers always put the edge pieces together in order to form a frame or a border first. That makes the rest of the puzzle go easier. The four corner pieces of this picture of salvation history would be God's central covenants. Up in the right-hand corner, top right-hand corner, is God's eternal covenant that he made with Christ in eternity past to save a people for himself. And then diagonally across on the bottom left corner would be God's covenant of grace that we read about in Genesis 3.15, which pictures the seed of the woman who is ultimately Christ, who crushes the head of the serpent. And then directly across from that, straight across in the bottom right-hand corner, is the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. God's promise to Abraham's seed, again, who is Christ, that he will save many from every tribe and every tongue throughout the world. And then don't forget in the left top corner, the new covenant. Prophesied in Jeremiah 31 that Christ inaugurated at the Last Supper to fulfill all covenants. Notice that Christ's work is central to these events. Now, there are more edge piece events from the Old and the New Testament that snap in between the corner pieces, of course. God delivers Israel out of Egypt. God gives his law. There's the occupation of the Promised Land, the building of God's temple. Israel's captivity, the destruction of the temple, the return of the exiles, the rebuilding of the temple, the messianic promises that the saints held on to. And the incarnation of Jesus is the most important piece that ties this salvation history puzzle together that makes sense of it all. You know, it was for the rabbi Saul who came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Upon seeing Christ glorified, he hit the ground. And on the way down, he realized that he had been wrong all these years, and he was condemned. And on the way up, he had a clear understanding of God's plan of salvation and how Jesus fit into it and fulfilled it. You see, he pieced, the pu- he pieced the puzzle of God's salvation in his mind, but it was missing the central piece of the incarnation. Paul had everything right except that piece. It was missing. You know, there's nothing worse than missing a piece of the puzzle. You, you complete it and find out that there's one piece that's missing. 
It's maddening. But once you discover it, you snap it into place, and instantly it gives full meaning to the picture. The incarnation was for Paul the missing piece to God's plan of salvation. And once Paul understood it, he stood up a new man, born again. Another important piece, of course, would be Jesus' second coming. And he will put an end to human history as we know it, execute his judgment, and usher his bride, the church, into the eternal state. Now, we could spend months developing this, this grand picture of salvation history, but I have time to give you only a, a brief little summary, and I'll do it in just 11 words. They are the genius, really, of the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, and it is his summary of the entire Bible. And it is so wonderful, I needed to, to use it today. He said that the whole Bible is about, 11 words, man's complete ruin in sin and God's perfect remedy in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Man's complete ruin in sin and God's perfect remedy in Christ. That's great. I love that. God's plan, his plan all along was to bring life to spiritually dead souls through the work of his one-of-a-kind, unique son. And he would make them alive through Christ, essentially resurrect them from their spiritual dead state and give them meaning and purpose to a very difficult life on this earth until he comes for them and takes them to be where he is. People don't know what it is to really live, you see, until they live in Christ. Whatever their endeavors are, their achievements, their possessions in life, they all end at the grave. They stop short right there. And people go out of this world the same way they came in, with nothing. There is no lasting or eternal gain, beloved, should one lose his soul. Jesus said so. But real, true, robust life in Christ, life that has meaning and purpose and awaits an eternal reward. Now that's living. So the first accomplishment of the incarnation is that God gave, his, gave us new life. The second one is stated in verse 10, and I might put it this way. God redeemed us. God redeemed us. God secured this new life in us by a sweet act of redemption. If you want to know how one really lives in life, how one lives life really, truly, is truly alive and can enjoy lasting gain, even eternal life, you need to read verse 10. Verse 10 says this, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now John opens this verse the same way that he opened verse 10 with that phrase that points us ahead to an explanation in the second part of the clause. We might translate the phrase, in this is love, better this way. Here's how we define true love. And before we look at how John defines it, before we look at his explanation, we, I think we need to pause here for, for a moment or two and realize what he's about to tell us. It's really what God, of course, wants us to know about love. Remember, the Holy Spirit is writing through John. What we have here, then, is an authoritative, absolute, trustworthy word from God himself as to the definition of love. 
How marvelous is that? I mentioned in our first pass at understanding biblical love about two weeks ago that love is a big deal in our country. It is. Everyone craves it in some form and to some degree and go to great lengths to get it. How many countries do you know actually have had a sexual revolution? I don't know any. Love is a huge deal here. In fact, it's a huge theme in the music industry. It's always been that way, even before rock and roll was born. And as important as it is to all Americans, there's surprisingly no universally accepted definition of love. Just some agreed upon characteristics that people find undeniable. Love is uncontrollable. Cannot be produced on command. It's elusive. It comes and it goes on its own. Something you can find. Something you can lose. Something that you fall in and out of. The world cannot say with any degree of certainty what love is. And that, beloved, is by satanic design. The evil one who currently rules this system, this world system, has instilled folks with a notion that they can define those godly and divine virtues any way they want. And in every case, their definition runs counter to the truth. And this is no less the case with love. It was true even in Jesus' day. He, he explains in his Sermon on the Mount the difference between God's love and the understanding of love promoted by the religious leaders of his day, who were, by the way, the best of what the world could produce, right? They were the spiritual leaders of the day. If anyone should know about love, they should know. But Jesus exposes their definition as false and his teaching as being right. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And with that formula, he accuses the strongest spiritually and the most moral in Israel of getting it completely wrong. They didn't know God's love. They didn't teach God's love. They didn't exercise God's love. Their kind of love extended only to those who were lovable, deserving of their love, those who reciprocated their love. That's the kind of love with which, with which they loved. It would appear then from this context that, that the world's best version of love is laced with a good amount of selfishness and self-preservation. God's love is by nature different. It's never selfish. It's never self-seeking. It's self uh, never self-preserving because it loves its enemies. It's inconceivable for any non-Christian to ever think that he could love a complete stranger, much less an enemy, with the same intensity that he loves himself. That just doesn't make sense. Now, this is why Jesus gives the worst-case scenario as the best illustration of love. Love enemy. And it no doubt shocked Israel's religious leaders to their very core because it was so radical. No one can love this way. It's foolish, it's silly to entertain loving someone who hates you. But this is how God loves. All right, on to John's definition then. The rest of verse 10 says this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How's that for a definition of love? You won't find that anywhere. Not in Miriam's or 
any of the 36 other definitions that come on the, on the Internet. No, to Christians, it's music to our ears, but to the world, it makes no sense. And if it did, they would find it terribly offensive at best. I'll explain as we go. What John says here about love is absolutely true. Now, it's not a comprehensive definition. It's not the last word on love in the Bible. It's not a summary of a biblical theology of love. It's just one aspect of the nature of divine love that John wants to emphasize in order to support his thesis in his letter. But it squares with everything that the Bible has to say about love. It's also the one aspect of God's love that best describes the purpose of the incarnation. So let's understand John's definition. He starts out by telling us what love is not, which is a literary strategy that many New Testament writers use when defining important theological concepts. In fact, you and I do the same thing in our communication as well. Yeah, literary and rhetorical devices have not changed since the dawn of writing. People are people, and writing is writing. That's what makes the Bible so reliable, uh, relatable. It uses literary conventions that we use all the time. And the one that John uses here shows us what love is not in order to highlight what it is. So John says, not that we love God. And by that he means true love is not something that originates in the fallen, depraved human heart. Make no mistake. We'll not find the meaning of love by looking at, at the various ways people choose to love God and others. We are not the source of real, true love. If that were the case, then, well, love would be relative, as so many things are today. Yeah, one could define love however one prefers on the basis of how one feels. If love began with us, then, well, we'd have the right to determine how we love God and others. And no one could tell us otherwise. But what the fallen human heart produces and calls love is not the same kind of love as divine love. We proved that already with Jesus' teaching on this very topic in Matthew 5. But Paul would later highlight the same difference in Romans Chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. Listen to what he says. For while we were still sinners, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John says that the meaning of love is not found in the way that we love God. And with that said, he goes on to tell us in the same breath what love is, and it is that God loved us. Now, you might be wondering, how does that define love, really? You know, God loved us. Well, John is telling us here that the meaning of love is found really in the way that God loves us. Let me help you through the implications of that. Just a, a couple, maybe three. For one thing, what John says here implies that love originates with God, not us. The grammar of the first two clauses in verse 10, very clear. Greek sentences emphasize 
uh, whatever they put first in their sentences. Subject of the sentence doesn't normally come first in Greek sentences. If it does, the writer wants to emphasize it. You could necessarily, you would ne it wouldn't necessarily pick this up in most English translations, but these clauses should be read this way then. Love is not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And John's audience would have picked up the emphasis right away. The eminent scholar, New Testament scholar, I. Howard Marshall, is right to point out, quote, we cannot begin to understand love by considering the nature of our love for God. And he's right. No, we need to start with God and the way that he loves. Love originates with God. For another implication, God loved, that God loved us means that God loved us first. Paul tells us that since the fall of Adam, every one of us was born at enmity with God. That's Romans 8. So God loved us when there was nothing about us that was lovable. It has to be that way. And, and, and we could do nothing to earn his love because we weren't even around yet when he commanded his love toward us. Paul tells us in Romans very plainly that, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Still sinners. God loved us. Now, this is God's love. Love in the worst case scenario. An action that human love cannot perform. God took the initiative to love his enemies by sending us his unique son as a propitiation then for our sins. Now it's at this point that John tells us how we're actually able to really live a new life in Christ. How Christians are the only ones who can enjoy new life that is eternal and of great gain. It is because God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation? Yes. It's not a word that most of us are familiar with or, or even occurs in ordinary conversation. But it is a biblical term, and you should learn it because it's a key one. It's a great term. The Greek word behind it simply means an atoning sacrifice. To put it in context, it was an Old Testament sin offering. The sin, or the sacrifice rather, that atoned for the sin of the Israelite believer. A sacrifice that was acceptable and pleasing to God. John tells us that God, out of love for us, sent us an atoning sacrifice. And that is the God-man Jesus. Through his acceptable sacrifice, the incarnate son, God cleanses us from our sin, redeems us, justifies us, declared us holy so that he could take up residence within us. Because of Emmanuel, God is with us and he is in us. And a person, a person is on the receiving end of that saving love. When he is, that person really begins to live. It's at this point that we learn the fuller meaning then of the incarnation. It was nothing less than a death sentence for Christ. God desired to redeem us by sacrificing his unique, one-of-a-kind son 
on our behalf. And that God sent Jesus in this way to atone for our sins, the sins of his enemies, it leaves an indelible mark of sacrifice on God's love for us, making it the greatest of God's loving acts and setting it apart from anything that the world could ever know or manufacture. James Montgomery Boyce makes the same observation at this point in his commentary. He says, quote, God could have sent Jesus to be no more than a teacher of righteousness or to be our example for how to live righteously, although no one would have been able to live up to it. But God does more in the sending of Christ to die for us, end quote. What an astute observation. He's right. God would grant sinners forgiveness and reconciliation that they may have life to the fullest a trem at tremendous cost to himself. And what it costs God to redeem us only magnifies all the more his love for us. Well, what have we said so far? We've said that God demonstrated his love most clearly, comprehensively, and completely in sending Jesus to be our propitiation that he may raise us from the dead, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we may have life and have it more abundantly, that we might become spiritually rich. Is this not the gospel? God's love, beloved, is most keenly understood in the gospel. And if you haven't come to the point where you see it as good news, the best news, in fact, the greatest news that you have ever heard, then you haven't been listening to God. Maybe this time is the time you listen. Hebrews 11, or 3 rather, verses 7 to 8, says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What better way to celebrate Christmas this year than to become a Christian? To, be, to come to God on the work of Christ alone, whom God sent you, and join in with those who have and, and can say, for those of us who have, there is something for us in John 4, 9 to 10, and it is the second part of the teaching of this text. And that is this, God's great display of love to us in the Incarnation enabled us to love as he loves. We mustn't forget that these two verses come in a context. John confirms this truth about God's love in Christ in order to spur his congregation on to imitate God's love. Immediately after this, this brief declaration of the meaning of biblical love, John says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that's really the point. Those of us who receive God's saving love and embrace the work of Christ alone for our salvation are in a unique position, not only to enjoy the blessings of God's saving love, but to love God and neighbor the way we ought. How are you doing in expressing your intimate love relationship with God to others? How are you doing at loving others? We, we have no excuse not to do a good job. Paul concurs with John and in Philippians 2, 
verses 3 through 9, Paul says as much. He said, Do nothing from selfish gain or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are you getting this? Christ died by denying himself all the trappings of his heavenly abode and debased himself, putting himself out in humiliation, even to the point of death on a cross, for our sakes. Paul says, have this same mind. Think this way as you love others the way God calls you to. God loved us savingly that we might now love as he loves. And when it comes to what love is and how to practice it, there is no greater model than the Lord himself. If you know Christ's saving love, I pray that you would consider even now how you should love in a way that fairly and accurately represents our Lord. And not just today, on this Christmas Sunday, and not just through the week, but, but through the rest of the year and through each year and on until he comes. Our Father, we are so grateful for this wonderful truth that we read out of 1 John 4, a truth that you moved John to write 2,000 years ago and have preserved down through the ages that it might wind up in our Bibles, that we might read it and understand your love and how it was displayed in the most perfect way possible. We rejoice over the Incarnation. And as we celebrate it today, Lord, we, we renew our commitment to to live the new life that you have created for us, a body which you have prepared for us, a body that you rose up out of the ash heap to newness of life, that we would use this body for your glory, for your purposes, that we would appreciate the love of Christ by the way we love others with this life that you have given to us by your mercy and your grace that we would do so for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.